My name is Dan Barrett. This is the Osmedia Report. On Sunday afternoon, I went to see a movie. It was at the Hoyts Entertainment Quarter. If you're not from Sydney, the Entertainment Quarter is a strip of restaurants and bars located near a large sporting stadium. It's there to provide dining and drinks to football fans before and after games. For most of the week, it's generally pretty empty, but they do have markets on the weekends and the occasional other thing that drives a bit of foot traffic. So when I sat in an empty cinema on Sunday, watching a movie by myself, that's actually not hugely unusual. It's the Entertainment Quarter that sometimes happens there. But to get to the cinema, the entertainment quarter was unusually busy. There were legitimate crowds of people there that Sunday afternoon, enjoying a few drinks at the pricey German beer place and at the nearby restaurants. Lots of people eating, lots of people drinking, nobody inside the cinema. This isn't an isolated incident. I go to the movies pretty much every weekend. This past weekend, I actually went twice. Now, often this will have me going to an event cinema, which are largely located in shopping centres, I walk through a busy shopping centre on the way to and from a movie. Lots of people shopping, lots of people browsing, lots of people eating at the centre, nobody inside the cinema. Am I the only person keeping cinemas in business? This week on the Oz Media Report, I want to talk to Luke Buckmaster. You've undoubtedly read his reviews over at The Guardian at Crikey or sites like flix.com.au. You may have even read his book about Mad Max director George Miller. Something I've got in common with Luke is that we're both incredibly handsome men who like playing around technology to have different types of movie experiences. Now, specifically, I want us to have a talk with Sir Luke about not just going to the movies, but about the future of movies, how we might be watching them, what's the form factor that will keep us watching them, and if we aren't going to the cinema, is the blockbuster movie on its last legs? Luke, thank you very much for joining me on the Oz Media Report. No, thank you, Dan, for such a lovely introduction. I'd say at least the majority of it was true. Yeah. Most of it. No, that's all true. I mean, especially the incredibly handsome part. Now, Luke, you're Melbourne-based. Cinemas have literally just opened in the past fortnight for you guys. It's been an extensive lockdown for several months now. Have you gone to the movies yet? And if so, what did you see? I haven't gone to the movies yet, actually. I, I've been thinking um, later on this week to go catch Tenet. And I was, I was contemplating how much I miss the cinema. And um, it's funny, like I, I miss certain aspects of the cinema, even though I'm a I'm an introvert a lot of the time and enjoy spending time by myself a lot of the time, I kind of I, I do miss the social atmosphere of the of the cinema. But you know, uh, as someone who who writes about the cinema, who who goes at least before the pandemic to the cinema at least once a week, uh, I've been surprised at how little I've missed it. Um, so I, I will go back again, obviously, uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, I've seen Tenet twice now. And I think you do need to see it two or three times in a cinema to actually understand what the heck it is that you've just been watching because it is not the easiest narrative to necessarily follow in full. Uh, but I've seen it two ways now. I saw it in a traditional cinema experience at a VMAX, but then I also went and saw it in 4DX with a chair that vibrates and moves around. And it was kind of exactly how I think that Chris Nolan really wanted me to watch the film. When he was directing it, like that is the experience he truly had in mind of me being sprayed with water while watching his film. Yes, the old vibrating chair. They still haven't quite uh, resolved some of the, um, should we say, flawed assumptions underlying the the, the vibrating chair experience. Uh, I, when I went to see... Um, one of the Fast and the Furious movies, Hobbs and Shaw, a couple of <laughs> yeah. years ago, that vibrating chair thing. I just found it was so stupid. Um, and I couldn't, my brain couldn't reconcile um, the, the realism of watching something that's that's cut and staged to kind of reproduce reality. You know, the film is sort of in this kind of heightened realism. And yet when someone got punched in the face, for example, my butt would be vibrating in the seat. <laughs> and I just couldn't work. Who am I in this story? Who am I? Am I the person? And if I'm the person being punched, why is my butt vibrating? Why can't I do anything else in the story? It's just I, I just cannot um, reconcile these you know differences and flawed pieces of logic. So I've had a couple of different experiences with it. So for those who don't know what we're talking about, 4DX is a technology where it's a South Korean company, CGV or something. Anyway, it's a South Korean cinema chain that's uh, launched a couple of bits of interesting tech. And we'll talk about them a bit more broadly in a little bit. But one of the things that have penetrated Australian cinemas is this thing called 4DX, 
which basically within a movie being completed, this company gets about two weeks to create a experience of you sitting in a chair and the chair vibrates and moves around depending on what's happening on the screen at the time. But there's also things that shoot water in your face and a smoke and it's a immersive experience of sorts. Now I found that like I saw Tenet the other week and that was kind of a bit weird. It was exactly what you were talking about. But then I've seen other sort of trashy films like say Venom, for example. And that was fantastic in one of those chairs. And I think the difference is that Venom was a 3D movie that I was watching, whereas Tenet was just a 2D screen. And I think the fact that I had to wear the glasses and there was an extra element where my head was involved rather than just my body being sort of ricketed around, I think that actually sort of brings you into the experience a little bit more than just that weird disassociated vibe you have in the chair where you've got that weird thing where you've been punched and your butt's suddenly sore. All right. So your answer to this is just to increase movement of of the body. Uh, get your head moving, get get your nose moving, smell vision maybe. Possibly. Uh, your butt's vibrating. It sounds like a full body motion experience. It, it's funny, like the um, the kind of borders of imagine, uh, imagination and, and um, imaginary universes are strong in some senses like when you when you watch a film you you can get lost you can look through the window of the movie making and get lost and absorbed in this world so it's sort of strong it's not going to kind of spill over out, out, out of your tv or out of the screen you, you know it's there and it's kind of um hermetically sealed in a sense but then in another sense it's kind of fragile it's like uh when you when you're in a watching a play for example maybe an amateur play or maybe not and the and and the um, the cast or an actor will then um, interrupt and face the audience and ask for audience interaction, like you know you've got to clap your hands together to bring Tinkerbell back to life or something like that. Yeah. And that's where the the imagination and and the worlds connecting or separating, I should say, uh, reality to this narrative existence start to break down for me a lot of the time. So it, so if you put in vibrating chairs and things that poke out at you. Um, yeah, I mean, you could view it as some sort of progress, but to, to where, where, where is this all going and, and for what reason, I think are reasonably good questions. Well, I've always broken it down in my mind in terms of if I'm going to go and have that sort of experience, what sort of experience would I be likely to have at the cinema anyway? So taking those two experiences, like two different examples of films. So you've got Venom at one end of the scale, which the thing is Venom is a trashy movie which will occasionally have a moment which may allow you to transcend the boundaries of sitting in the cinema and actually feel yourself in the movie and get caught up in the action of it. So you've got that kind of an experience, but let's be honest, we've seen a lot of terrible action movies in the past and you know that even if that happens, there might be one scene that allows that to happen. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting there and you're going to be very cognizant of the entire experience that you're watching a movie. Whereas something like Tenet, which... I mean, it is Christopher Nolan. He's very sort of technique focused rather than someone who's a fully immersive filmmaker. But there's always several moments in a Nolan film where you know that you will get caught up in the magic of the cinema. And I kind of feel that a Tenet movie, you don't really want to watch with the extra gimmicks going on. But if there's anything that can distract you and just add an extra layer onto something, which is a fairly flat experience anyway, like Venom, like I think there's maybe an opportunity there to like spruce up your cinema going a little bit. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. From from what I hear about Tenant, and again, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, from what I hear, it's uh, hard enough to keep up with, uh, <laughs> let alone adding in some vibrating seats. But uh, yeah, there's a fine line, I guess, between enhancing the immersivity of an experience and coming across as gimmicky. Yeah, I don't know. You say gimmick like it's a bad thing. <laughs> well, I think to your point is 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 like. Venom is already gimmicky. Yeah. And uh, and I'm saying, why not enhance the gimmick? <laughs> I agree with your point uh, from the perspective that I think virtually anything um, would have made that movie more tolerable. Uh, vibrating seats, lots and lots of alcohol, um, even even the the roof of the ceiling coming crashing down above our heads. So that 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 would have made that that film, yeah, you know, not more enjoyable, uh, pending what sort of injuries are sustained, but um, but certainly more interesting. Okay, so we were talking about this uh, 4DX. The company that does this, they've also got this other technology they've rolled out in the cinemas. Uh, they've branded it as Screen X, which is basically a 270-degree screen. So they've got them in about 40 countries around the world. 
And basically it's the cinema screen as you know it, but on the left of the cinema and on the right of the cinema, there's an additional screen. So when there's action taking place, you'll see the action suddenly blow out to be across three screens. A car may start screeching from your right-hand side and you'll see it in the main frame for the main bit of action. And then it might head off to the left a little bit. So it's more of an immersive experience. So there were a couple of Marvel films that were made this way. So Black Panther, I know, was filmed with sequences where it really took advantage of these screens. Uh, there's a competing company called Barrow Escape, which I think's actually gone under recently. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about this because I don't know if you've ever experienced a Screen X experience, but I know that you did it within virtual reality with a Nicolas Cage film a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's right. Um, I haven't experienced it in the cinema, that those three widescreens, but I did experience it in virtual reality. The company that um, produced it or that produced screens um, rather than the film was different to the one you mentioned. I can't remember its name, but it folded... Um, well, I think, that, of course, I think that was Barrow Escape, or at least they used ah, the yes, Barrow Escape technology for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I guess out of the rubble of the collapse of that company emerged the 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 Titan and Goliath of, of the Nicolas Cage B-movie. Uh, so, yeah, I saw the Adjustment Bureau in, uh, which is a pretty terrible title, uh, which wasn't the worst thing about the film, actually. Uh, I saw that in, in VR and... Um, yeah, it was interesting. You can you can certainly um, you, you get it. You get the appeal of it. You get the look of it. Um, you get the feel of it. And that technology is new in some respects, um, but also old in other respects. The um, uh, film Napoleon from the nineteen twenties, mid nineteen twenties, mm. was actually the, the end of it. Is a, is quite a famous triptych, and uh, the director uh, basically used three massive screens in the cinema and had to um, align uh, all of the projections simultaneously, often resulting in three separate images because they were so hard to time together, but not not always. Uh, but yeah, I saw it in VR. Have you seen any feature films in VR yet, Dan? Uh, so I've actually seen a bunch of feature films in VR. So one of the first experiences I had was actually the is it Adjustment Bureau, is that the name of it? I'm pretty sure that's that's the name of it. Yeah, I'm concerned I'm confusing I'm with another film. It's something similar to that if that's not the title. Um, so, yeah, it's a, I don't think the, the Adjustment Bureau, oh, it's, it's a dodgy, I, I want to interrupt the title by Googling it, but I'm not going to. Let's just call it the Adjustment Bureau for now. Yeah, yeah. It's a Nicholas Cage B movie, so they all sink in, into um, into the same sort of broth. Okay, so I remember reading your article, I think it was on Flix.com, it would have been one of the early Flix.com articles. Uh, but like, I read your article, I'm like, that sounds kind of interesting from an experiential sort of standpoint. And look, there was no sort of gimmick that could really make that film in any way watchable. I think 15 minutes in, I tapped out. But uh, the experience I have actually enjoyed is not necessarily something which is gimmicky like that within a virtual environment, but things which just sort of place you sitting inside a regular cinema and you're just watching a mm -hmm. movie on the big screen. And what I like about that is often when I'm sitting on the couch, I'll have my phone in my hand. And if the film gets a little bit sort of quiet and if it's a film I've seen before, I'll tend to get the phone out and do a little bit of Twitter and come back to the movie. If you've got the virtual reality headset on, you're really stuck there. You have to keep on watching. And I like the forced um, nature of sitting in that cinema screen. And also I've got a 55-inch TV screen at home. Like it's big enough for the lounge room, but the ability to be able to watch a big screen movie in the comfort of sitting in my office chair, like that's a great experience. So I've watched maybe about like four or five things that way. And legitimately, I've remembered the experience of watching them in the same way that I do remember the experience of going to see a movie. So I remember mm. watching the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers uh, a couple of months ago. And like, I've got very fond memories of sitting on the couch, on my office chair, watching this movie in 3D, even though the experience was not exactly special. I literally left the kitchen where I was talking to my wife and sat in a bedroom like a weirdo with a headset on. And it was mm. a great time I had. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, a couple of interesting things there. By the way, the, the, the Nick Cage movie is called The Humanity Bureau. Ah, which there we not go. The not The Adjustment Bureau, which is a Matt Damon film. Humanity Bureau is even worse title. But anyway, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, one of the appeals of, for me of using um, VR is, is, is the full immersive environment um, prohibits you, like you said, from using your mobile phones, from checking other screens, from, I don't know, um, looking over at the kitchen or whatever you're doing. And even though uh, I'm pretty kind of diligent like that, I, I review films, so I'm there with my um, notepad, I'm, 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 you know, taking notes while I'm watching it and I'm pretty focused, you, you still do feel some kind of, it's almost like an ingrained twitch that, that makes you sort of want to reach for your 
um, pocket, grab your phone, and, so, and you have to sort of fight it, um, which I find you know problematic and in, in, in for a number of reasons. But that's one of them, and in, in that it sort of in, can can risk interrupting movie experience. But yeah, you do get rid of that in 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 VR, um, which is one feature of the technology. Whether in the future there'll be um, mobile phones inside um, VR, uh, your mobile phone, for example, something like that, that we'll have, I guess we'll find out, I'll have that conversation later on. And the other point that you made or the other thing that you reflected on, which was really interesting, is that you basically said that you remembered that experience as if you were at the movies mm. um, or in a very similar way. And uh, there's a lot of research uh, that's in the VR field around um memory generation and experiencing virtual environments. And when you go into a, a virtual environment, be it um, you know, some sort of game or narrative production or uh, like a theater app like yours or a social space, uh, your brain essentially remembers it as if it were a, a real um, quote unquote location and, and real experience. So there doesn't seem to be at this point, the research uh, does powerfully suggest that there's not a lot of difference in terms of your brain um, remembering locations and experiences between doing it virtually and doing it in real life. And, and the other, the third thing that's really interesting about this conversation is the idea uh, that some sometimes floated around in VR enthusiast circles that virtual reality could be uh, quotes or, is, or, or or they speculate that it could be um, the, the last medium. And what that essentially is arguing is that uh, all other artistic mediums existing un, unto this point can exist inside virtual reality. So for instance, uh, watching a, a movie, you've done that in virtual reality, uh, reading a book, you can absolutely do that in virtual. You can read any number of things. Um, looking at a painting, of course. Uh, watching a play, I've 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 watched live theatre in VR. That's a, that's maybe a conversation for another time. Really fascinating. I've been to music concerts in VR. Concerts in VR. Uh, stand stand up comedy. I saw. Yeah, stand up comedy. And so I guess if people hear that and go, well, that's hyperbole. Um, the the last medium. Then the question becomes, and that and that's a perfectly um, valid perspective. But then the the thing that that needs as a as a sort of extension to the argument that it is hyperbole is a suggestion of if it's not the last medium, when what comes next that you couldn't put inside virtual reality. Yeah, I mean the answer to that is basically the humanity bureau, which I don't think really deserves to be on any <laughs> platform. But we'll try to move beyond that. So. I want to move away from virtual reality and the way we're experiencing stuff. And we'll probably get back to that in a little bit. But one of the things I'm really stuck on at the moment is thinking about the actual content we're consuming and where we're consuming that content and where the benefit is. So the thing that's keeping people from the cinemas at the moment is that there's already a lot of comp like really compelling viewing options at home. And you don't really require the annoyance of having to go out to see a movie. You have to go at a specific time. You have to work out how you're going to get there. There's a lot of barriers of impediment, which is just kind of frustrating and annoying with that cinema experience. And the only real benefit is that you get a very large screen and occasionally you get a good audience to watch something with. Most of the time, though, it's usually a pretty bad audience that you're watching things with. Like the number of positive experiences I can think of, I can maybe count like two or three fingers as opposed to the number of bad ones I've had, which, you know, they definitely stick out in my mind significantly. So it's annoying. Mm. It can be expensive. And why would you do that when you could sit at home and watch 10 hours of The Crown? In a few weeks' time, we get Mank at home via Netflix. A decade ago, that would have powered art house and specialty cinemas for, like, their box office for months and months. And I'm wondering, is there actually a case to be made to go to the movies anymore? So even without like virtual reality as a way to give yourself an immersive experience, we've just got a very traditional experience of a TV screen and we all know how to do that because we've been doing this now for the last 70 odd years. Mm. Is, that, is that enough though? Like have we replaced cinema purely on a content level, let alone an experiential level? Well, on a content level, I think the answer is obviously yes. Uh, not, not so much replaced it, but just e e equaled its appeal. So as you know very very well it's like in the in the 90s and pre i guess pre streaming uh, there was still a big gap between the sort of experience that you could uh, encounter when you're watching tv and the sort of um, i should say the sort of content you can encounter and the kind of content you can you can see on the big screen there's no difference really anymore if if netflix are going to drop you know 100 or 110 million on bright or something like that 
um, on a big expensive um, B movie and the cinemas are doing the same thing, no, there are, there's just no difference content-wise. Uh, if anything, content-wise, TV has an advantage because it also offers these long narrative arcs that you can tune in and watch over several, several seasons, returning to characters and situations you're familiar with. Uh, so then the question becomes, if you cross content off, I think we can cross that off in terms of unique offerings. And also the stuff that's in the cinema goes to TV anyway. It's, you're talking about a maximum of three months. It's on your... I mean, so it's, it's ridiculous to say that, that um, content is driving people to the cinema. Um, sure, in, in the short term, people do want to see the latest and greatest thing. But as we're seeing more and more, the latest and greatest thing is also on your screens as well as uh, in the cinema. Um, so then, you, so I guess the question that you're, you're kind of asking is why will we go to the, the movies? Why we go to the cinema? Uh, what makes it special? What makes it unique? What gives people the motivation to, to to go out? And I guess part of that is the social element, like you've said. When you go to um, a cinema, there is these ripples of energy that you feel um, with people in the room. But like you've also said, that comes with significant downsides and drawbacks, to say the least, at times, particularly if someone's talking or watching a phone, um, checking their phone or whatever. I guess uh, that also brings us back to this um, idea around being immersed in, in, in the cinema. So it feels like an event. You're leaving the house. You're experiencing something that's really got a sense of largesse and, and kind of bigness to it. So if you're watching a movie, a blockbuster in the cinema, you're less likely to um, think about the objects around you. You're less likely um, to check your phone. Um, all that is behavioural, though. I'm not, so, you know, I'm not so sure that gives it its distinguishing features people do like to leave home in order to go somewhere and do stuff where they feel safe there's that i mean there's not much underlying logic to it but there is surely that yeah oh, look i mean i'm guilty of that like essentially on sunday afternoon when i saw the exorcist which is a movie i've seen many times at home and i'm sure i saw it in a cinema back when they re-released it in the early 2000s but like effectively, I went and watched a digital projection of it. So it wasn't even like it was a special print at all. It was the same experience I could have had at home, but I did it on a big screen. And part of it was really just having an experience where I got out of the house to go and do something. So yeah. like, there's definitely benefits to that, but I'm not sure that's enough to sustain most people. No. Uh, but you, men you mentioned Bright, which was Netflix's uh, fairly expensive Will Smith film. And I got to thinking about Christopher Nolan. This week he made a comment about how he doesn't mind people watching his his movies on mobile phones. And his thinking on it is that the film's already screened on a big screen. It's received the prestige bump that comes with that. And so what happens to cinema once it doesn't have that prestige bump anymore? Which brings us to Netflix with the fact they keep on spending large amounts of money on these big screen extravaganzas. I think about movies like Mank and that will definitely have a prestige bump because it'll get Academy Awards and that gives it its prestige, even though most people will see it at home and for all intents and purposes, that's an at-home movie. But they've got these other at-home movies. So I think about, say, Michael Bay's Six Underground. So that was a large action extravaganza. But I think that, for example, like Bad Boys, uh, there was Bad Boys for Life, I think was their third film that came out back in March. And I think made more money than any other film this year by virtue of the fact it was one of the only movies to really come out this year. But like you've got that film coming out and in my mind, Bad Boys for Life is so much of a bigger movie than Six Underground, which I'm sure more people saw Six Underground by being on Netflix, but didn't have that prestige of playing on the big screen. And so I wonder about the cultural impact that exists as a result of that prestige where yes, it feels like Bad Boys for Life kind of came and went, but even so, I think that had more cultural resonance than Six Underground. Mm. And so I guess the question I want to lead out from this is if Six Underground doesn't actually have the cultural impact, but it does have what they claim to be large audiences, does it make Netflix seem a little bit like a grift more than it is actually a cultural tastemaker? Oh, well. Now, now unpack the 45 things I said through that. Uh, I don't know about <laughs> a grift more of a culture i think for me the, the 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 interesting thing that you've you've sort of raised there is is not so much about um netflix tricking people or not being as substantive as they like to think they are um but the idea that something then gets lost in the algorithms and so you, we've kind of chanced upon some kind of virtue here of the cinema experience, particularly with these pedigree titles, in that uh, films be do become more of an event. I think the more 
um, context in which they work. You know, they resonate, they find audiences. So, so if, if, if Mank, uh, which is, like you said, it's, it's playing a little bit at cinemas and then going to um, Netflix, if that had just gone straight to Netflix, um, it, it instantly gets lost in the homepage algorithm. The homepage algorithm of Netflix is like Google or Facebook algorithms in that even the people who made it and designed it and tweak it, they have no idea how it even works. They, sure, there are people that understand bits of it, um, but they don't really understand how it all works. Um, so I guess if you if you do have a, a film that plays for say uh, one month, two months, however long at the cinema, and it and it actually gets people physically going to a cinema to see it, they have to leave their house, they have to put in effort, then it gives the 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 the, the content the greatest chance of becoming a pedigree piece of content. It's known, it's talked about, it's water cooler, and then maybe it lands on these streaming platforms. Um, do you know what I mean? That 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 may be one feature of putting in cinema. I'm not sure it's a huge feature in the scheme of things. Yeah, but as the cinema becomes less and less important to the way we're consuming, like what happens to that prestige aspect of things? So I think about say like yeah. Mulan, for example. Like Mulan comes out and it was expected to go to cinemas, but it never had that. So mm. by not going to cinemas, you don't really have the PR push that it would have probably had otherwise. There's just like lots of little elements of what a cinema release brings a film that wasn't really quite there. So yeah. effectively what you've got is someone like myself sitting on the couch saying, yeah, I could watch Mulan for 30 bucks or I could just watch something else. There's a bit of a disconnect with the idea of Mulan, which is built to be a big budget focal point a cultural focal point that no longer has that focal point anymore because for all intents and purposes it's just more content yeah uh it's it's i, I don't know uh, how how it's going to affect prestige stuff um i i suspect in at least in the short term it's gonna have to rely to some extent on word of mouth on i hope critics i mean um no one cares about critics anymore uh, wah wah wah! Cry me a river. Uh, but if the but if but if some sort of kudos comes back to the critical community, uh, which I doubt, um, then as the tastemakers, then maybe that'll come into play. Um, it's also possible that we're really the, the, we're really in this. These sound like the sort of discussions you have, and I think this is getting to maybe where you're going with it more broadly when you're in a sort of business model and an entertainment industry that is changing and will never ever go back to what it was uh and the cinema the multi multiplex cinema maybe is in the who knows it could be in some senses in the death spiral um that doesn't necessarily mean i think cinemas are going to close i think the cinemas will remain open um for a long time um but it, they're going to have to change their approach. And I don't really know how exactly they're going to do that, um, but they're in the sort of fight for their lives. Uh, they're in a sort of existential funk at the moment because of COVID and it's accelerating pre-existing trends. So all of this stuff might actually be part of this, um, this evolution or, or, or devolution of, of cinema. Uh, and the one word that that will always survive uh, from the rubble of of the ashes of um, multiplex cinema is the word cinematic. Cinema's greatest legacy, I think, will be in a cinematic ways of viewing the world. Um, that will remain long after the art form, um, you know, if it ever leaves us, is gone. There was there was an episode in the '80s uh, TV show Max Headroom that started. Um, in a sort of dilapidated cinema, once was a cinema, and, and he sort of, the protagonist does this narration, piece to camera a bit outside about uh, reflecting on the days in which uh, audiences congregated to watch single, non-interactable narrative experiences. And he sort of spoke of this in terms of, we, you know, as if we were um, cavemen looking at pictures on the side of the, of the walls. Yeah. Okay, so what do you think that next stage is for cinema? So I remember very early when people were talking about VR, there was that sort of idea, and it was a bit of a silly notion I've always thought, but the idea that people might go to a cinema type of space and put on helmets and have a shared experience that way, which seemed crazy because why couldn't you just have an isolating experience like that at home? Like I couldn't, there was such a disconnect with the idea of what virtual reality offers to the idea of a social space where you do virtual reality where you're just sitting there consuming. But I'm wondering... 
Is virtual reality necessarily a future for cinema, either at home or an experiential thing where you're out in the world somewhere? Is there something else or is this maybe just a element of like a mode of consumption that we just say goodbye to at a certain point where there isn't really a like for like experience. It's really just that eventually cinemas just start to go away and we just start consuming our video experiences elsewhere in another ways. Yeah. Well, I think it's clear at this point that every bit of content is becomes part of this sort of soup of content. There's nothing really that distinguishes cinema content as we talked about from a movie that's produced by Netflix. Um, nothing technically um, separates it, nothing in terms of budget. Um, prestige comes later, things you associate with it. I think um, younger audiences, younger viewers, younger participants, uh, depending on what sort of terminology you want to use, will, will want spatial entertainment. Uh, space, spatial elements are in real life. They're going to want it in um, their entertainment. And, and you can see that uh, or the very, very early stages of it in augmented reality, in mixed reality, in virtual reality, um, with the cinema experience in VR, I don't think it's it's necessarily a matter of VR sort of replacing it. I think in every in every period of a um, an art form's early days, you get the nomenclature of the previous existing art forms um, creeping their way into the discussion. For example, in the early years of cinema, they called films photo plays. Uh, and then gradually you get your own um, terminology, uh, series of languages and all the other things that come with that, um, behavioural expectations, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, yeah, I think you do have the, the all content is just moving, all moving pictures of content becomes part of this soup. Um, if, if people are actually watching, say, what we would currently call a movie or a TV show inside a VR experience, you, you, you would presumably be doing that on a flat screen, um, which would not be in a 360 environment, which would be removing a couple of the key modalities of VR and spatial entertainment full stop. So I think we're kind of caught in this interim period now where so many things are possible and so many things are coming to an end. Yeah. Like the thought I've always had is that augmented reality probably steps in here to a certain degree where it's not that you're watching a big screen movie through virtual reality as much as you're just seeing a additional TV, a large screen TV led into your lounge room through augmented reality rather than going somewhere and experiencing something. You're still just watching something on your TV. It's just that now your TV is a 30 foot screen on the side of your house. Yeah, well, then there's a couple of different ways to look at the possibilities there. So you could say uh, augmented reality, you, you might be wearing a pair of glasses, um, maybe comfortable glasses like the ones I'm wearing at the moment, and you're mm. watching a screen with them. So the, the very idea of having a screen, will, a physical screen seems to be pretty retro, but it's going to be a long time before they stop, they, they leave us. Uh, but again, if, if, you, if you're doing that, you're still looking at something that belongs to a pre previous existing age maybe maybe there's also things like um holograms so if the maybe you don't have to wear your glasses inside maybe there's a hologram that comes out and that is spatial so you, you could if you like um walk around it and have a look through it even though you're kind of entering the realm of vr there again um but i, I don't know I, I don't, it's just it's a little weird that we would exit one form of 2d entertainment to go into another one uh, I, I think it's going to be more like a spatial entertainment. Um, the, there's a few things you have to get um, sort of over in the interim, though. People don't really, at this point in time, they're not keen. Who would have thought? They're not keen of strapping to their faces uh, things that look like uh, massive goggles for skiing uh, and, <laughs> and staying in them for extended periods of time. Uh, but if it's just a, if it's just a pair of glasses like me and you are wearing, uh, and they can comfortably turn, you know, take them on and off. Maybe there's a switch on the side um, to change between, you know, mixed reality, augmented reality, virtual reality. Uh, that would probably make it easier. Well, the thing that I always sort of think about is, and just taking in mind everything that you just said then, is that I, I think about like the obvious sort of um, pop cultural touchstones to that idea, which is the holodeck from Star Trek. So it's this idea that people enter a virtual space and are able to interact with virtual figures and it looks and feels like a real world environment you're in only it's all virtually created. 
So you think about that as the obvious sort of endpoints, what you're saying. But then you also think about like, why is it that we actually necessarily watch television? Are we necessarily television or movies or um, other 2D based entertainment? Are we necessarily watching this purely for that storytelling mode of delivery where you're engaging with a story and um, finding all the sort of pleasures that come from that? Or are you actually watching it for the way that the majority of people actually watch this stuff, which is to have something on in the background to let your brain sort of switch off a little bit and to fall into a world and have that experience where uh, they say that watching TV has the same uh, recuperative elements as uh, sleeping for a couple of hours. And to an extent, I think that's why a lot of people are watching entertainment to have that bit of relaxation and to let their brain sort of become part of like the sort of REM type of, um, Mm. you know, brain state. By taking people into an interactive environment, you're actually robbing them of why people are actually watching TV. So maybe we are stuck with 2D by sheer need of the fact that's what people are desiring from entertainment. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting thought, and I have I have put some effort into contemplating this. It's like last night, for example, uh, I'd you know done my workout, I'd, you know, get off the exercise bike, I'd had dinner. Um, I'm not just walking you through my daily routine for absolutely no reason, by the way. Uh, Please turn. <laughs> then I had a coffee, and then I got a few cashews uh, there. Um, no, um, but at, I was, uh, so basically at about eight, eight 30, I was, you, you know, pretty tired at the end of the day. Um, but I still wanted to do stuff. I had this, this game that's a couple of years old, but it's still very, very good called Lone Echo VR. Um, yeah. so I had to almost like push myself a little bit to play it once, once I did, uh, you know, spent maybe an hour, an hour and a half and there was, I was happy that I did, but like you sort of said there, most people, you know, you don't really want to push yourself to do anything on your own relaxation time. Um, so yes, it is. It's it's concerning, I think, in that sense because uh, I don't know. Yes, people people like to have something to switch off. Like it's even concerning that people half watch TV and half watch um, films. Uh, and you're exactly right; they do, and they get another screen, and then maybe another screen while they've got another screen in the background. So it's yeah. sort of like this culture of increasing amounts of people who are not really watching anything, not really listening to anything, and watching everything and listening to everything. Uh, so it's not registering. Um, so that brings us back to another feature of the cinema, which we sort of touched on before. Um, yeah, I don't know how to get past that. Uh, because I like to think, for example, that in however long, 10 years, 15 years, whatever the period is, it might be a case of uh, I've got a, an hour and a half to spare uh, before going out tonight or staying in virtually. Uh, I want to, you know, I want to be <laughs> in, I want to be the yeah. hero. I want to be the hero in a virtual reality adventure. Um, maybe, hey, computer, can you throw in a little bit of um, space quest in there? I want to get a bit of romance thrown into, um, let's go. I really like that idea of um, future narrative entertainment. I'm not sure that really fits in with with how you just slump on the couch, turn on the boob tube, and um, and change the remote and don't pay any attention. There's got to be surely there has to be some sort of middle ground here. Like maybe it's sort of spatial, and you can get up and sort of look around it if you like, like a hologram. But it's also there in the background. Maybe it's optional in terms of its immersive qualities that go beyond 2d spaces i mean the thing with the hologram though is anything that's 3d and is trying to compete for your attention is automatically something you want to start engaging with and like at the moment the thing, it's hard yeah it's hard moment. to ignore something that's trying to engage with you and i say this in the same way that you were putting on your three uh, your virtual reality goggles on last night and having fun with that I was having a different type of engagement where I was trying to crash out on the couch, but instead my dog decided to stand on the couch as she does regularly through the evening with her paws right in front of me, shoving her doggy head right into my face. Mm. As much as I want to ignore that, I kind of can't and I need to engage with it because mm. this is the thing with a 3D thing that's blocking your view from the television. Like you kind of have to keep engaging. So yeah. I don't know how you like, I don't know how you don't engage with a 3D object that's competing for your ascension. Yeah, but these are really early days. So, like I said, maybe yes, it's you're right. It, it, it's hard to envision, but maybe there is a middle ground here, and maybe it's flat, but or from a certain angle, it's not. I, I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe you can walk around it if you like, but it's not talking to you. It's a separate experience. Um, 
Yeah, it's tough. I mean, just yeah. just for another sort of viewpoint on it, I think about when you're watching a movie on your mobile phone. A mobile phone, by the pure virtue of what it is, you want to interact with it. And I know when I'm watching a movie on my phone, I want to interact with this object that's here in my hands because that's kind of what you do with it. So I'm always touching the screen. I'm seeing the progress bar come up. But you can't really do anything with it because it, your movie would stop playing then. You're no longer watching the movie. So it's this sort of thing where you've got a real world thing that's in front of you and you want to engage with a real world thing in the way that you engage with real world things. But when you can't do that, suddenly there's a um, frustration that I think sort of comes through. But then you see that's opposite what you were saying before. You were saying before the dog's on the couch, you're watching a screen, you don't want to engage with it. And now you're saying just because the screen size has changed and it's on a mobile phone, you do want to engage with it. But it's because it's in my hands and the device itself is built with the idea that I'm touching and engaging with it. Yeah. A TV screen, which you keep at a distance from yourself, is an entirely different type of a screen. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's entirely different, but it's just larger. <laughs> point of view. I mean, it is, but my TV around. screen traditionally hasn't been interactive. Yeah, at least sure. not yet. Well, well, remote controls, but anyway, yeah, yeah, no, no. So I think it's, I think the there's a point here around the expectations that you associate with it, any number of devices and mm. your, the behavior that you greet it with. So with your mobile phone, yeah, of course you 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 know you're right. You want to play with it. You want to get your fingers all over it. You do that every day, um, many many times every day. Whereas the TV in our, in our current set of expectations is just sort of like a painting at the background that moves. But that's only where we are at at the moment. Um, and it does feel like, you know, we're in, we're in the, this is a sort of separate but related conversation. We're in the information age right now. And it feels like um, we're, we're sort of, we're, we're being hit so hard with almost the end bit of it. It's hard to imagine a world with, all that much more touch wood or something, all that much more information. Um, and certainly with, you know, it's hard to imagine a world less meaning, but we're, we're, we're tumbling down that rabbit hole anyway. So TV and, and entertainment is part of that. There's a, I, I, I might be coming at it from a different perspective, being a critic and writing about it so much, but it feels like people are just not surprised by stories, that, that motion picture stories like they used to be. It feels like the luster is gone. If you if you asked in some respects I should say not every respect if it, you know if you asked me when the last great movement was in film um, you know I would struggle to it, I mean when was the last great film movement it's de decades ago like you might even be talking like French New Wave stuff you know these it's now it seems to be impossible to have these massive stylistic film movements because everything is so fragmented so I guess um, yeah the the point Look, is there I that I, I don't have an answer to that exactly, but there's a big conversation that's happened over the last like year and a half where people keep on looking at American cinema and points to the year 1999. And while 1999 certainly wasn't a movement by the sort of way that you're talking about there, there is something about 1999 as maybe the last good year for cinema where there was like this sort of weird change that was happening within the US studio system where they were being a bit more adventurous and challenging audiences in a way that they kind of hadn't been through a lot of the 80s and through the early 90s. And suddenly cinema got a little bit more bold and experimental. Like Fight Club is probably the sort of prototypical example people look at as like a 1999 movie. But there were a bunch of other films that kind of challenged people in sort of similar ways. And then after that, TV kind of picked up the ball and sort of ran with it from there. But it kind of feels like if we're going to find like the last time that cinema actually challenged audiences... And I'm not saying that like there was necessarily sort of great artistic triumphs in 1999, but it just kind of felt like that was that last point where you kind of actually really felt something from cinema. Maybe. I uh, don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 in recent decades, you know, there's still been many, of course, many great films, many films that move you, captivate you, that you wish to return to time and time again, um, or some that you just see one time and never forget. Um, but there isn't this... This, the tectonic plates of, of the industry aren't putting, pulling in different directions. They're just offering a very scattershot um, look at things. Um, so I don't know about 99 being a great year. I haven't thought about it all too much. Uh, Fight Club is, is uh, you know, a big fan of Fight Club. Um, wasn't, didn't go all that well in the box office though, but not, no. that, not that that's a measure of success. But yeah, I, I, I think that the only way that you're, that, the motion pictures as a concept is really going to innovate 
is if mediums themselves change. And we're seeing that. We're, we're seeing that with AR, we're seeing that with VR. We're seeing that with a whole lot of other stuff. Like I, you know, if we're, if we're talking about the Google Home Office Assistant, you know, for example, we have basic conversations with the computer now. We ask them questions, it answers them. We ask them to tell us a joke, it tells us a joke. Uh, and then we go and watch TV or then we go play VR or then we enter a dialogue with a computer, um, which is a constant interplay as well. Um, it's almost a performative space in some respects. Programs are like, like scripts, you know, they, they, they have certain cues, certain scenes. I just think all of this has got to, we're starting to see it all combine. Um, what we're not seeing is the cinema um, booming in the way that it always has <laughs> before and I don't think those days will ever come again it's not to say that you know I, I'm not gonna you know I don't think the cinema is gonna stick around I think it's gonna stick around for a long time but uh maybe it's more of a boutique thing Dan maybe it's more of a you know like the equivalent of going to a museum yeah no I mean I think there's something to that I think the idea of a cinema being a place that you can go to on a daily basis any day of the week to go and see something I think that's probably going away to the point where maybe it is just open for a couple of hours and outside of that, maybe the space is being used for something else. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So you, you mean non, like not a movie sort of movie? I'm saying, I'm saying that I go to the movies on a weekly basis. And admittedly, when I go, it's not peak time. So I'm usually there like on a Saturday morning or like early afternoon. So that isn't generally when lots of people go. But often I'll find myself as the only person there. And if your argument is that, oh, well, there are lots of people there on Friday and Saturday night, but... You know, when I'm there at other times during the week, there's such little patronage. I can't see the business model affords the opportunities to keep on running these spaces in the way that they are. There needs to be some sort of other thing that starts happening. So yeah. I don't know what that do with the cinema space during the week, but maybe it becomes a thing where like maybe we go to a university and so it becomes lecture halls for, you know, five days of the week. And then on the weekends, it gets turned over to becoming a picture palace. Like who knows exactly what it is, but I think there's just going to be a rethinking of what we're doing with this sort of large screen entertainment. If that still becomes a thing. Yeah. The business case of it is a very um, compelling discussion. Uh, you know, the, as you know, the, the, the cinema industry wasn't exactly booming in, in many respects. It was struggling like it has been for some time before COVID. And it's this idea of COVID as being the great accelerant. You know, it's mm. really pushing forward these pre-existing trends. Um, it, it seems to me like the, the, some of the, the concepts around running a cinema are kind of mind-boggling or at least concerning. You know, charging $21 for a ticket when you can pay $12 for unlimited Netflix for a month. Um, basing most, you know, most of the money at the cinema is made by the selling of popcorn and soda water, essentially soft drinks. Um, you know, you, when you pay $12 for a, a, a popcorn and soft drink, it's, you're literally buying popped corn and, 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 and soda water syrup. What's the, what's the overhead on that? It's like, what do you reckon? How much would it cost for the cinema? Like a 50 cents, 20 cents. And they're like, selling it for $12. It, it just seems like that's not a great idea, but of course they have to do that because the distributors. Offsetting all the other costs. Yeah. And the distributors taking you know, sometimes 50, 60% of the box office, 40 to 60% of the box office instantly gone. Um, and then now at the present moment and in, in the in the dark year of 2020, this foul year of our Lord, as uh, Hunter S. Thompson would have <laughs> described it, uh, yeah. we're appearing now where you can only get a third of the cinema full. So if, if there was some struggling um, elements of the industry beforehand, God, uh, it, it feels like they would really be struggling. They are really struggling now. And I wonder um, in Australia and in America, you know, how many companies will fold? Um, surely, I mean, the, 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 surely the old, the old saying, the centre cannot hold, um, surely that applies to cinemas. I mean, how, how, could, how could all the cinema chains stay open? Uh, I just I can't see it happening. Can you? No. And this is kind of where I'm at. So I think that's kind of the point where I enter this conversation. And I guess that's maybe the point where we leave the conversation in that I, I don't know there's any answers to any of this. <laughs> That's a hell of a point to leave the conversation, Dan. It's just sort of, we're leaving it in an existential funk, but it was always going to be that way. So yeah, I answered this conversation from a very nihilistic sort of standpoint. I couldn't see what the future of cinema was. And as we leave this conversation, I think I'm probably just left with more questions. So 
I don't know what the next five years is going to be. I don't know what the next 10 years is. I think I've got a good sense of where our engagement with a screen would be going, but are we still going to watch screens? I don't know. And Luke, thank you very much for just giving me even more questions to ponder because <laughs> I, I was hoping you might have a solution. I thought maybe you would steer me towards something, but I, I don't think anyone can. Well, You're only yeah. one man. Yeah, as they, as they say, change is the only constant. And we don't know exactly where we're going, uh, be it in terms of our activities today or our life trajectory or the trajectory of the universe. But we do know that things are changing. It's a great discussion, Dan, and I appreciate you uh, having me on. So Luke, quick plugs. Uh, where can people find you? What do you want to sell people right now? Because <laughs> this is what it's all about, man. That's what it's all about. Um, oh, well, uh, lukebuckmaster.com is my website uh, and you'll get all the links to uh, my writing there. I'm from The Guardian, uh, from flicks.com.au, uh, from NME and other projects. Uh, you'll, you'll be able to read about my book there if you, if you please. And also you'll be able to subscribe to my EDM. Um, and yeah, so I'd appreciate uh, any of that or none of that. Uh, well, obviously wouldn't appreciate none of that. Uh, but that's fine too. Um, yeah, so that's a, nothing. I'm not really selling anything, Dan. I, I should bring out a like a, I don't know, bobblehead or something. I'm not subscribed to the EDM, so I'm going to take care of that as soon as I finish this up. Also, yeah, I haven't put my haven't put my order in yet for the Luke Buckmaster bobblehead. So these are two things on my agenda very shortly. But Luke, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, no. Thank you, Dan. That's it for this week on the Oz Media Report. Huge thanks to my friend Luke Buckmaster for the chat we had this week. If you enjoyed that chat, I want to maybe direct you back to a podcast maybe about a month ago we did here at the Oz Media Report, where I spoke to film journalist Michael Bodie. The two of us discussed a very similar topic, really just looking at the decline of cinema in Australia. But I really wanted to have a bit of a different conversation that I had with Michael, which was focused very much on just the pleasure of going to the movies and just the enthusiasm for the experience. I wanted to have a bit more of an in-depth chat really about the technology and where things are going based on that technology and the way that we relate to that technology. So I thought having a chat with Luke about that kind of stuff was really, really important. And I just wanted to get that out into the world to a large degree. But yeah, check out the Michael Bodie conversation as well. Similar terrain, entirely different perspectives though. Now, this podcast, if you enjoyed it, help out the podcast, leave a review over Apple Podcasts. That'd be great. I know it is annoying as heck to hear me ask people for this every week. But if you do like the podcast, positive reviews on platforms like Apple Podcasts. It helps out podcasts like this so, so much. Now, you can find more episodes of the Oz Media Report via your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to leave a voicemail, you can do that via the Oz Media Report website. Just visit www.ozmedia, that's A-U-S, media.report. That is a real URL, I assure you. Anyway, thank you for listening. I'll be back with you next week for more Oz Media Report.